Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I wanted to start with an email I got a few days ago from a therapist named Rachel. Hi, Craig, Dr. H. Love your podcast. As a psychodynamic slash psychoanalytically inclined therapist, I appreciate the way it broadens my perspective of mental health and of psychiatry. I love the most recent episode on good psychiatry, and it touched on so many issues that contribute to the split in my own mind and in the mental health field between psychiatry and psychotherapy. So much of what you and your guests said about quote-unquote depression fit my own view, that so much of what we call depression is dissociation, that trauma is the great imitator, that little t trauma in our early relationships can look like depression, that undigested grief looks like depression, that there are root causes beyond anything we were taught or can imagine. And in my own practice, I'm not even sure what else depression is outside of those things above and like them. While destigmatizing, I find that my patients' belief in the medical model that quote-unquote depression is a disease that exists in its own right, like diabetes, is typically unhelpful for them to explore, to process, and potentially heal from whatever is underlying their depressive symptoms. Outside of bipolar depression, my personal bias largely rejects a disease model of depression. I'm not sure you would go so far. So my question is, since you shared all of these things that are not depression, what is true depression from your vantage point? And from my vantage point, how might I recognize quote-unquote true depression or differentiate it from all these other things? Not sure how much email you receive or your capacity to engage here, but I thought about emailing you many times, so glad to finally reach out. Warmly, Rachel. Oh, thank you for writing. Um, I do get a lot of emails, but I really love to hear from all of you. So... Yeah, this letter brings up some really good issues. I see depression as really existing in sort of two buckets, and Will Vanderveer and I also talked about this, that I do think there is, um, there's the syndrome of depression, which is a huge bucket, which I'll talk about in a minute. And then there is this one narrow, small, if you will, I think as Rachel would describe it, true depression, endogenous depression, genetic depression, or we might call it bipolar depression. And so this is very inherited. It runs in families. You know, the um, bipolar, endogenous, if you will, tr true depression, medical depression, it um, typically appears in early to mid-adolescence, runs in families, is recurrent and severe, often characterized by treatment resistance and suicidality. Importantly, characterized by hypersomnia, often, in, and seasonal worsening. And so that, that is one bucket of depression. And the other humongous bucket of depression is what we call unipolar depression or major depressive disorder. This bucket is often syndromes of depression that are fueled or triggered by anxiety. Because again, another way to think about the two major types of depression, the more endogenous bipolar, uh, genetically driven, if you will, tends to have hypersomnia. It's a real shutdown kind of syndrome, whereas the insomnia is driven by the anxiety-fueled unipolar depression, which again, that includes things like, gosh, you name it, anxiety syndrome, substance use, life stressors, um, personality characteristics, for example, people who tend towards more neuroticism, less openness to new experience, introversion. Uh, these are all things that can predispose to this large bucket of kind of syndromic unipolar depression. So I, I do agree with you, Rachel. I think that much of what we call quote-unquote depression in mental health practice is uh, multifactorial, 
it's anxiety-driven, it's uh, biopsychosocial, it's complex. Root causes are hard often to determine. And, and this is one of the reasons that depression responds, particularly mild to moderate depression, responds well to psychotherapy because there are biopsychosocial factors that often respond really well to psychotherapy. So thank you for that letter. Last season, I sat down with my dear friend Antonio Sacre, who is a Cuban-American storyteller in Los Angeles. And if you haven't listened to that episode, you should definitely check it out. But one of the things Antonio has been telling me for years, he's been a wonderful advisor to the podcast. He's been saying, Craig, you have all these white people on here with their white perspectives. And where are the non-waspy, non-white perspectives? And so it's true. We have not had a lot of people outside of white Colorado world, but this episode is very different. Today I sit down with Ana, and Ana is a Mexican medicine woman, or curandera, as they say in Spanish. And I think she brings an important perspective, one which many of us rarely encounter, and a perspective that I think is particularly relevant today as we enter a veritable renaissance of plant medicines while also trying to avoid the rampant mistakes and misuses of the past. Anna works with various medicines, including one that was mentioned last season in the Dark Side of Psychedelics episode, and that would be Bufo, also known as 5-MeO or 5-Methoxy-DMT. And in contrast with that episode last season, Anna describes much more mindful and careful use of this powerful compound. I had such a lovely and interesting conversation with Anna, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. It's really great to be here today with you, Anna. And, uh, you know, in the first couple of seasons of Back from the Abyss, most of the people on the podcast were my patients, and that was, has been really meaningful and, and lovely. But what's been really fun in the last couple of seasons is people have been reaching out to me, and you reached out to me a couple months ago. And we've been talking and emailing and planning for this. I'm super excited that you came. And I also want to say thank you so much for turning me on to The Emerald. And we're going to talk more about the podcast, The Emerald, but I have been loving that and sending episodes to, to people. And uh, So anyway, listeners, check out The Emerald. It is something very special. So great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here. I would love to place us in a, in a context of where we sit here where we are. I'd like to pause for a second and just recognize that where we are now, where we're seated, Colorado resides in indigenous, ancestral, and occupied lands of a lot of different tribes, the Apache Nation, the Arapaho Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, the Pueblo Tribes, the Shoshone Tribes, the Ute Nation, uh, the Lakota and the Navajo. And when we pause for a second to realize we are right now seated in those lands, lands that are were occupied and taken from those people, it just gives us a context, kind of puts us in our place a little bit, mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, we are in borrowed land. We are sitting in land that does not actually belong to us. And the indigenous people would say that it doesn't belong to them either because the land itself is a spirit and it's not something to be owned. Mm. So, Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I thought we'd just dive in. Um, I think one of uh, the questions I had as we were preparing for this episode is, 
you know, what do you call yourself? And he said, I'm a medicine woman or curandera. And I love Spanish. It's such a beautiful language. I love Mexico. I was just in Guanajuato, Mexico. It was so amazing. And so I'm just going to use the word curandera because I love that word. And, and <laughs> you're, you're Mexican and you're curandera. Yes, thank you. You're curandera in Colorado. Yes. Yeah. Why don't we start with um, how would you describe what you do? Hmm, well, when I try to put it in a short sentence, I help people remember who they truly are. That would be the short of it. <laughs> wow. Remember who they truly are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in your mind, why do we forget, forget who we truly are? Oh, we could spend a lot of time on that question. The overculture interjects from society there's there's so many things and trauma you know a lot of a lot of the things that happen to us in life have parts of us go into our shadow and we're told how much not to express ourselves or true selves and you know there's this overculture that tells us what quote-unquote normal is and how to be that and a lot of us don't fit that bill and where are the normal people? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends what definition of normal you go by. I have mm-hmm. my own definition of normal, which means when you truly are yourself mm-hmm. and you don't have to work to fit into your society, your group of people, you know, that to me is normal. But normal society defines normal very differently. Mm-hmm. What led you to this work? Hmm. I love that question because it, it never it never produces the same answer. There's always something inside of me where I was trying to remember who I was. I think I've spent a life trying to remember who I was. I grew up in Mexico and also a land that was colonized for 500 years. Um, it's a culture that is very classist. And it's a very interesting culture to grow up in because... A lot of us are mestizos, you know, in 500 years of colonization, of course, we become a mixed race. But it is also a culture where the, the lighter your skin color, the more privilege you have. And at the same time, we honor and value the wisdom of the browner people, the people that are closer to the land and the people that have wisdom. And uh, so there are so many paradoxes, even in the ways that I grew up in a land where there's so much wisdom, there's so much richness, there's um, so much people that remember what it's like to walk barefoot on the land and the fact that we are that, we are connected to it. And at the same time, I grew up in the middle class in Mexico City going to private schools. And um, it's a very Catholic country, as you know, but I did not grow up Catholic, which was a blessing. My mom did not believe in organized religion. I think she was a healer herself, somewhat of a closet bruja, closet witch. (laughs) I wish that she had lived long enough to really open up in those ways. I grew up seeing things and experiencing things that I think a lot of people in this country may not experience. She worked with energy. She would take us up the mountain to do this healing with the extraterrestrials. (laughs) Not them themselves, but people that had you know, been trained by them. And some people might think that that's absolutely crazy. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that we did. 
she was definitely not your typical Mexi- Mexican mom. She did a lot of things that a lot of people were not doing. But it was really beautiful because I grew up with the idea that the mainstream was not exactly the way to go and the way to be. Like, life really started at the edge of that. So, make a long story short, I ended up at 17 flying to L.A. And we could go deeper into how I got there because it was very interesting um, you know, ran away from home at 15. There, there was a lot of childhood trauma and ended up on a plane to L.A. My dad lived in L.A. and uh, I studied music and eventually became a music and Spanish teacher. And I married someone who provided me a lot of uh, stability that I hadn't seen growing up. And that was really beautiful. But I knew that there was so much more inside me. And it took me a while to to become balanced enough to know that being a suburban mom in the Washington DC metro was not exactly <laughs> fitting for me. There was something comforting about it. It was, it was a nice life, but um, it was definitely not the calling of my soul. always attracted to ritual. I was always attracted to ceremony. I was always attracted to people that were connected to the land and walking in a way that they were not questioning whether or not they were part of nature. And so that led me to somewhat of a new agey kind of environments that seemed a little bit closer to what I thought. And that led me to diving a little bit deeper, and I was really attracted to plant medicine when I started hearing more and more about it. And it took me a while to find the ceremony that felt right. Every time I heard ayahuasca for a while, I was like, whatever that is, yes, I'm a yes. My skin was, you know, I had the goosebumps and all of that, and I was looking around, and uh, I eventually found... A friend recommended someone to me that was actually in this country, and I flew there to have my first experience. And when I sat with that medicine um, and she opened up for me, it was like I had come home. It was something that felt like was a, a wisdom deep in my bones, like I knew this place, even though I had not really worked with mind-altering substances much before. I had smoked cannabis when I was younger, but not in any ritualistic way. And honestly, I didn't really like it. <laughs> when, when I was younger, I didn't really understand the wisdom of that plant. When I experienced that medicine, there was something calling me home. And I didn't know what that meant really, but I knew I was to continue to work with her until I figured it out. And uh, I started hosting... I invited this um, this ayahuasquero to come to my house and continue to do my work. And pretty soon I was assisting and playing some music at the ceremonies and being in service. And um, every time I did a ceremony, I, I went deeper into this, this is my path. But I didn't know what this was. This meaning, am I going to eventually serve the medicine or am I going to 
continue to host? Am I, what is this? And eventually I went to Peru and uh, sat with the medicine for 10 days and, and I asked the questions. And I always laugh because when people say, well, ayahuasca told me this, ayahuasca told me that, well, you know, does the medicine really tell you or, you know, who is really telling you? I don't, I don't have the answer to that. I don't think ayahuasca has a preference particularly. Mm-hmm. But the message that I got when I asked, am I supposed to move to the jungle and learn how to be an ayahuasquera? Is this my path? And the answer I got, I was laying on a bench outside the Maloca in Peru, deep in the jungle, looking up at the trees. And the answer I got is I have walked a path as a healer for a while. At that point, I had studied Reiki and pranic healing and path life regression therapy and was um, had become a life coach and was working with other modalities like Ho'oponopono and sound healing. And so I was already doing work with people in the healing realms and uh, what I heard, whether it was her or my own voice or my higher self, was you have the tools and you can. And it doesn't have to be this. It doesn't have to be you moving to the jungle for a couple of years to work with this. Like the door is open, which was kind of a relief because I was not exactly about to leave Colorado. I had just moved to Colorado not long before that and imagining moving to the jungle. It sounds romantic, but it's really not. Mm. <laughs> it's too hot, too many bugs. Yes, there's yeah. a lot of bugs. So I came home and I just continued on my path. I think one of the things that has happened in my life that is fascinating is that when when I don't know what direction to go, all I have to do really is wait. Because sometimes something happens, it feels like it comes from my belly, where it just pulls me to the next thing, where I find myself doing something that maybe I wouldn't have thought of before, but all of a sudden I'm doing it, and then, and then my brain gets engaged and goes, okay, what, is, what exactly am I doing? And, uh, and that's how I found, actually, 5-MeO, Bufo, the Bufo medicine I was very, very, very pulled to that medicine. And so... Do you think you needed to do the preliminary work with ayahuasca before you could get what you needed from the 5-MeO? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 5-MeO is no joke. It's a pretty serious medicine. I call it the uh, the PhD of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. I think to really get where Bufo can take you, you have to have a certain level of willingness to surrender in a way that, you know, in, in, in a world where we feel like we have to control everything, it's not easy. So I did, I did have to do a lot of work and I continue to do my work. You know, it's not like there's a destination, right? I don't think we become quote unquote enlightened or whatever on this path is. No, it's a mountain without a top. How has your trauma history sort of informed your your work currently as a curandero? Because you you've done a lot of your own work, and I'm presuming you work with a lot of people with trauma now. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how your own 
healing path you know, affects your day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute work with people? Mm, yeah, that's a beautiful question. I remember very, very vividly being confused, being feeling like I was not comfortable in my own skin, feeling like I was wondering who I am, trying to fit in, especially when I lived in Northern Virginia in the D.C. metro area, trying so hard to be one of the PTA moms and, you know, walk confidently and try to convince myself that I was confident. And I wasn't any of those things. I vividly remember that um, when I started releasing some of it and healing the trauma and finding a confidence from within. I have a memory, actually, of when I was a child. I was so insecure because of a lot of the things that were happening in my environment that if you asked me what my favorite color was, I would freak out. And like, I would be looking for like, what's the right answer? What's the right answer? You know, and I I look back at that, like, oh, that poor little one. You know, like I've been there. So when I, when people come to me that have insecurities, that have those things, like I can relate. I've been there. I know what it's like. I've been a runaway high school dropout, leaving home because things that happened that were more than my young being could handle. So it's easier to hold space for people that have gone through tough things when I know the territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often wonder, I think this probably varies person to person, when you, if it's harder to work with people who you deeply understand their trauma because you've had similar trauma, or if you haven't had it, like there's mm. some distance. Because in some ways I'm reminded of a, a therapist I work with in residency who would say, I like to work with all sorts of people except people who have my own issues. <laughs> and she said, you, you would think that we would be best with people who have our similar stuff or similar trauma, similar histories, but that actually can be the hardest of all. Um, I don't know if that ever comes up in your work that you come across people who actually, you can so identify with what they've been through that that actually makes the work more difficult. Um. That applies to my kids, actually. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. You know, I could, I could never, I t- I've tried, which was a big mistake, to be my kid's healer, and that does not work. Um, my older son and I are so similar in a lot of ways and so different in a lot of ways, and um, we can trigger each other because of that, because of our similarities. And that one is hard. With clients, I remember when I was studying to be a life coach and the people that would get attracted to me to work with had often were going through exactly what I was going Mm. through at the time. And I remember keeping two sets of notes on the table when I was working and one was, oh, this, I, you know, I still need to work on this. And, you know, I would take notes on or your stuff, on my stuff <laughs> that was coming up when I was talking to them. Yeah. And then, you know, I would take notes on, on their stuff. I think it's kind of inevitable that we attract people that have similar issues. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah.
you and I had some email correspondence before we met today, and I um, wrote down a bunch of things that you said. And one of the quotes that you wrote to me a couple weeks ago, you said, quote, I'm a bridge between the Western ways and the indigenous ways. Mm. I really love that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd say more about that. Yeah, I feel I feel like I was born to be a bridge between so many things. And uh, that one right there was an insight I actually had at the top of Machu Picchu Mountain <laughs> on Wachuma Medicine when I was coming down the mountain and the, and the city of Machu Picchu was right in front of me and I sat down. I was with two friends and uh, all of a sudden I could feel within my system that I had the blood of the colonizer and the blood of the colonized. I could feel my indigenous roots and had so much love and compassion for that and reverence for the wisdom that came with that. And I could also feel the roots of the people that colonized the indigenous people. And, uh, you know, I don't know why this happened in Machu Picchu. I'm not from the Andes, but um, but it did happen. And I, I had also so much compassion for the colonizer, people that had themselves been colonized and came to this territory and they thought they were doing the right thing. And so within myself, I have both. And so, and and I grew up in a city that had both. And I've come to the United States where I've studied in an American university. And, um, and I'm a mestiza woman in a territory that was actually Mexico before. So there's so many ways in which I am both of these things. And... Um, there is so much um, dialogue these days about whiteness and white people and the colonizers. And uh, part of me is like, well, even even the part of me that is white, there's a way in which I have to take responsibility for what those ancestors did. And there's another way in which I am this person and I don't know what I don't know. And there's a way in which I... I don't know what I need to take responsibility of. So there's a part in me that has so much compassion for all of it and feels like the part of me that has the indigenous wisdom can educate the other part of me that doesn't know what it means to be part of the colonizer. Mm. And so because I have it within myself, when I see white people and I see indigenous people and I see the pain of both, I feel like I can relate also to both. Mm -hmm. I also am from Mexico, which is a bridge between South America and the U.S. And so even even there, when a lot of the indigenous wisdom that comes from the South, I feel like those of us from Mexico are part of that bridge of bringing that. So there's a lot of ways in which I see myself as a bridge. Mm -hmm. Another thing you wrote, I thought this was really interesting. You said, I think trauma training is very important in psychedelic work. Knowing how to honor the unseen world is just as important. Hmm. Yeah, we could dive quite deeply into that. Um, Let's do. You know, from the quote-unquote Western perspective, and even when I say that, the Western thing, I always think, you know, from the South, this is North, <laughs> not West. So it depends what perspective you're looking at it from, but we, we call it the Western, the Western viewpoint, the colonized viewpoint, which, you know, I'll just 
refer to it that way uh, for ease of conversation. Trauma is is a thing that happens to us. It's an individual thing that happens to us, or it's a thing that happens to your family. And there's there's a way in which we do have to de- dive deep into our own healing and what's happening within ourselves. When we do it with plant medicine, we're entering worlds. We're entering dimensions with spirits, with other beings. And um, I think it's very dangerous not to recognize that, not to realize that the plant, the plants themselves, ayahuasca, wachuma, mushrooms, have a spirit and we're entering their world. We're putting the spirit of this plant inside of ourselves and we're going into dimensions that, you know, a lot of people say they can see the trees breathing and they can talk to the mountains or, you know, when they're um, communing with psilocybin mushrooms. It's no longer a mystery that we're entering those worlds. And medicalizing our plant medicines and taking the molecules out is a very dangerous thing in my view because part of why this medicines work is because they are wise, wise master teachers, old spirits. And um, I think we have a colonizer attitude towards nature in general. I think we see it as something that is ours to do whatever we want with. Plants are just things, and we can grab a psilocybin mushroom and extract the psilocybin out of it and put it in a capsule, and and we're missing the whole point. We're missing the whole point of entering a world with a teacher. You know, if we really saw nature as indigenous people see nature as our kin, a part of us, a part of our community, a part of our world, um, not separate from it, you know, you wouldn't go to your grandmother and say, you know, I like your eye. <laughs> Let me just take your eye out because it's handy for me. I could use your eye, but I don't want to use the rest of you. Yeah. You know, that's what some of us are beginning to think of as the plant medicine world, especially. Yeah. Do you, th- do you think of the spiritual realm that you can access with plant medicines and psychedelics? Do you think of it as having a teacher or teachers? And let me say a little more, more about that. Um, you know, in the Emerald, that podcast, um, Josh Shirai talks a lot about the anima, the spirit. And so he speaks about sort of the, the universal life, oneness, um, the spiritual realm as sort of a united thing, like as a, as a kind of mother earth, if you will. But he also speaks about it as being like lots of discrete spirits and entities and so I'm wondering how you view that whole realm, you know, of like, do you see it as there being a teacher or teachers? Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, I think it's both. Mm. I think it's both because I see consciousness as a spiral. And um, at the top level, we are one, there's really no separation. So when you're talking from that level of the spiral, there's a oneness, there's one. We are all part of that. So that one would not be plural. But as we go down the spiral of consciousness and we divide into more individuals, there are a lot of representations of the one 
but at that point there's a plurality, right? And interestingly, um, I've had a couple of experiences with Bufo where it has shown me that very thing over and over and over. It took me... The spiral. Well, it was, it, it was more like... It took me to that sense of oneness where I did not exist as separate from anything. I was just, I was creation itself. I was love. I mean, the word love is very limited from the experience I had. I mean, it's, it was, it does not fit into language, the experience I had with that. But it was definitely, I was not me. I was not a separate being. And then there was a spark that happened where... From that spark, there was a choice point where I became a separate soul from that. And then there was a plurality and there was a me and there was a choice and there was a life that came from that. So, yeah, I think it's all of it is true. think are some of the specific risks when we just think of psilocybin or ayahuasca or some of these other medicines as something that works on the brain and something that works on the psyche, but not something that actually brings you in touch with you know, the anima or spirit or, or, or a bigger realm? Like what, what are the, you know, I mean, one downside I could see is that you're losing some healing potential, you know, like, like if you only uh, used first and second gear of your car or something, mm-hmm. but you but are you? Do you see specific risks or you know dangers with ignoring that realm of these medicines? Yeah, I think I'm going to turn the question around a little bit because I think that part of the wounding that we have in this society is that we've already separated ourselves from nature, and. We are we're already colonizing nature. Even even people that say, "Well, I spend a lot of time in nature," but how do we spend time in nature? We walk on top of these trails and we look at these mountains and um, and we see it as something that is serving us. And that disconnect, I think, has led us to a lot of more colonization and more separation and we have this you know i call it like a vending machine society where we just want to put a coin in something and get our candy and walk away and and not engage with it any longer Uh, we don't really engage with nature how often do we go out into a trail and we pause and we say hello to the mountain and the spirit of the mountain and say do i have permission to walk on you Mm. and honor the buds that are growing you know and this is almost spring in Colorado here we are like honoring the season that we're in we're transitioning from the sleeplessness of the the sleepiness of winter into you know and and really put ourselves where we are in the cycle of nature so when we've already separated ourselves and we're trying to heal 
but we're also not honoring that this is a spirit and that we're ingesting a spirit which is part of nature, which is hopefully taking us back to remembering that we are part of it. It kind of doesn't help all that much. Mm-hmm. Now, is it good to help um, our brains and to heal some of the trauma? Of course it is. You know, that's why there's so many paradoxes in the world of psychedelic healing because good better best right there's something good and there's something better and there's something even better than that so some healing is great and you know you work with ketamine i think ketamine is a fabulous medicine it probably doesn't have a spirit i'm still working on that one Mm -hmm. figuring that out um because i happen to like ketamine myself and uh, i have gotten a lot out of it and there's mdma there's molecules that we've created in a lab that help people heal i think that's fabulous and there's more mm-hmm. yeah you know there's a there's a term that's being batted around in psychology and psychiatry now nature deficit disorder mm-hmm. and um you know i have been reading about like that is a thing but it's interesting i heard you on another podcast and you talked about our separation from nature being a maternal attachment wound and I thought, no, that's actually a much better description. Mm. It's not nature deficit. <laughs> that's such a such a twenty first century American concept. Right. It's that no, it's that we are severed and um, cut off from that. What we are, that we are, we are nature. We're part of something so much bigger, but we don't even see it. And so we think this nature deficit disorder, like, oh, we should be out in in the forest and the in the rivers and we'll feel better, which is true. I think people feel much better when they're out mm-hmm. amongst the you know, the plants and trees and the animals. But I love how you conceive that as something really in a spiritual way, mm-hmm. not as a deficit disorder, but as a attachment wounded to that which sustains us and births us and will churn us, you know, on and on and on mm-hmm. through eons. Yeah, the deficit disorder implies that there's something something outside of you that you are needing more of as opposed to it is a part of you that you need to wake up within yourself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, you could sit by the river and of course it's a beautiful experience, but commune with the river, see yourself as part of the river and it'll be a much richer experience. Yeah. I've just been struck. I've talked about this on the podcast before where, some of my people I see who just suffer terribly from different kinds of depression and trauma, if when they spend an extended period of time um, outdoors, you know, camping or walking or just waking up with the sun, going to bed with the dark, falling asleep to the sound of you know, leaves rustling and water, it's so healing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I, I actually agree with you and... Um, with that this is really part of, it's not a mind or brain thing it's it's something much deeper it's it's mm-hmm. a whole different realm mm-hmm. that is bringing us to a much healthier place mm-hmm. with that yeah when i have had clients who have depression and i'm no psychiatrist or i'm not even a therapist but the first thing that i do is if you have the energy for one thing go spend some time in nature Mm-hmm. every day and of course eat and drink those are the three things like let's just start there and then you know if if the depression is such that i have to um send p- 
people somewhere else. I do, but it hasn't happened very often. And, you know, spend time with the mother, spend time with that which created us, that we are a part of. And, you know, we, we start seeing ourselves as part of a, an ecology and this very healing. Mm-hmm. And belonging is such a word that, you know, gets thrown around too, like, you know, I don't belong and there's a lack of belonging. Well, guess what? We belong to that first. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking, it's interesting when you just said something about like good, better, best or better, better. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking of, you know, the three sort of realms where these medicines work. So one is brain working on neurotransmitters and neurogenesis. And the next would be the psyche, which is like better in some ways. And then in whole, even better than that is if you can also include the bigger realms of um, you know, of spirit and connection and getting out of our individualized selves you know on the emerald there's a recent episode which i'll link to in the show notes called the revolution will not be psychologized Mm -hmm. and you and i both love that i've listened to it i think three (laughs) times and listeners if you listen to this episode carve out an hour and a half just to really focus because you're going to go into a wild trance state with this episode but it's all about this idea that so much of what's happening in mental health, psychology, psychiatry today is so focused on mind and brain, Mm -hmm. on what can we do with the different neurotransmitter circuits or what can we do with our individual healing, our individual therapy, our individual path, our individual um, shadow, but the key thing being individual. Mm -hmm. And that that episode talks about, no, there's something much bigger and more important, this whole third step we're leaving out, which is that these medicines ignore and and just the whole western psychological view ignores that there's something much bigger than us and that um we're ignoring that at our peril Mm -hmm. no it's Mm -hmm. so much of the kind of demoralization disconnection despair depression if you will of 21st century society is related to this hyper focus on individualism Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I mean, we've separated ourselves to the point where our own, you know, there's a mentality here, I think, that, you know, we need to be these great individuals and very independent and self-sufficient. And we give our kids this idea of self-sufficiency and, and everything is towards individual success, whatever the heck that is supposed to mean. But then we find ourselves all alone in this world that we've separated ourselves from. And uh, we may not want to be dependent or have codependencies, but we are definitely interdependent and we do need to live and work with each other. Um, and we need each other. So when when we start recognizing that, I remember um, I was hosting a ceremony with the Kuntanawa tribe. Uh, it was an ayahuasca ceremony. And... I had gone to prepare the teepee. We were going to go outside into the teepee, and I came back in, and there was a young girl in the hallway at my house. And um, she was having a little bit of a hard time, and this was at the beginning of the ceremony. And I remember I had this pull to, because I do work with individuals, there's a part of me that you know wants to just take care of that individual in that moment. But there was, in the sanctuary space where the ceremony was being held, was the singing going on. 
and there was a part of me that understood in that moment the healing, her healing and what she's going through is not personal. She just needs to go back in that room. And that singing, where that ceremony is going as a whole, as the community, that's where the healing is. And uh, so I helped her get up and go back into the room, and it was really beautiful to see. And I, I also was, uh, the medicine was opening up in a big way for me, and I sat down and I started singing um, with the group. And the alchemy that happens in those ceremonies where it's a group healing um, it's exponential when we are healing as a group and when, when we're not so individual or my thing, my problem, my, you know, my problem is a part of a bigger problem, which is we're all separate. And when we all come together to do this healing, it alchemizes all of us into a connection. Mm, I like that. if we might shift to talk a little bit about the specifics of the work you do and how you think about um, planning a course for, for people. So why don't we just, I'm thinking of like a prototypical, let's say you have a client come to you with a significant sexual trauma history and, um, and wants to work with you. So how do you think about whether he or she is appropriate what kinds of ceremony, what kind of medicines, what kind of path, like what, how would you think about just in general terms, like someone like that? It starts with a lot of conversations with the person and I don't specifically do sexual healing, but we look at the history. I have a three page intake form and uh, they fill out the form. And, you know, the first thing I ask myself is, is this something that I can hold space for? Um, and if it is beyond my scope, I may send the person out. I am not a therapist. I have, you know, as I said, life coaching and, and other skills. And I've worked with Gabor Mate with trauma. And um, I have those, some of those skills. Um, Can you say more about beyond this, your scope? Because I love that. Because I think mm. one of the most important things, all of us, like therapists, doctors, corranderas, that we need to realize who is beyond our scope. Mm-hmm. And how about for you? Like, how do you think about, um, in general, when people come to you and you think about, yeah, this is in my wheelhouse versus no, this is not? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you brought up sexual trauma. I have actually worked with people that had pretty severe sexual trauma. And this one's going to be kind of hard to explain because there's a sense that I get when I'm talking to somebody. There's like either a settling in my belly or like a fluttering in my heart, like, oh, this is going to be really hard, I'm not run, sure. Run, 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 run. Yeah, so, so I have to listen to that. And uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of us have this savior mentality, like, I want to be the one to help this person, and that's ego. So if I hear myself say words like that, like, oh, I really, like, if there's an I in there, like, I want to help this person through that, 
I have to stop myself and pause and go, wait, that's, is this for me or is that for them? So there is that questioning. And uh, a few years ago, I think I, there was a part of me that really wanted to just take on, like, I want to help everybody. And now, you know, I've matured hopefully <laughs> a little bit into, into the humility, like this one doesn't feel right. So a lot of it for you is intuition. It's not yeah. necessarily elements of the client's history or like rule in, rule out. It's more what you're feeling in your body and, and just sort of energetically what. Yeah, I wish I had I had a more specific answer for you, but it, it really is it really is intuition because I have I have had clients with pretty severe trauma that if I had just looked at on paper, I would have been like, I'm not qualified for that. Mm -hmm. But there was something about our chemistry and a connection that I had to something bigger than myself that felt like I can hold the space for this. Um, How often does that happen that you talk to someone initially or, you know, in first meetings and you think mm, something is not right? Like, again, too much ego or just a sense of dread or sick feeling in your stomach or just some sense like this like is that an unusual thing or is that happened yeah it is it is unusual it is unusual yeah i think a few years ago i did i did probably take some people that i'm like eh, i'm not quite sure that i should be working with that i have a client right now that is um very complex and i have to keep asking myself am i serving her am i serving her and i'm i continue to get really good feedback that I am but um yeah this one is kicking my ass a little bit yeah. um and she has done so much she has gone through so many different iterations of her healing process and because I do see a lot of progress I've stuck with it but this this is one that I've thought you know if if at any point I see that I am not really serving her I'll have to look around and uh and send her somewhere else so um I think that as long as I keep asking those questions mm -hmm. I feel I feel good but there there isn't like a particular quote-unquote diagnosis and I don't diagnose mm -hmm. um that would be like oh no I can't it's more like yeah I have a sense that this person I'm, I'm not the person for this person. Yeah. What about if people are on psych meds or have had an extensive psychiatric history? Does that figure in much to, or again, or is it not so much of a cognitive, you know, discernment of, you know, I want to work with this person versus I, I shouldn't. Mm. I don't get a lot of people that have a huge psychiatric history. Um, I mean, there are some, there are some, and I do ask a lot of questions. People that are on meds, I do not give any medical advice. And in fact, there's a part of me that doesn't even want to learn myself about all the interactions because I don't want to play doctor ever. So I have a relationship with the spirit pharmacist who is a beautiful man who lives, I think, in Costa Rica. And I, anybody that is on meds, I say make an appointment with him and tell him what we're planning on doing, and then he can guide you to if you have to titrate, if you have to um, stop your meds for a while, or if it's better. And I have had people that are not ready or willing to um, stop their meds for whatever reason, and then we don't go forward. But he's um, 
beautiful person to have in my back pocket because I never want to be in a position to give anybody any advice about any medications because mm-hmm. it's not my wheelhouse mm-hmm. at all. So, so they do have to go through that door first. Yeah. Even if I may know the answer um, to whether a med may or may not be contraindicated with uh, with the medicines that I use, I don't want to be the one to give that answer because it's not it's not my job. Yeah. So you work with a number of medicines, and let's say in this this case example I gave you of somebody with a sexual trauma history. I mean, how do you think about you know MDMA and psilocybin and bufo and ayahuasca and sort of you know, moving people through a healing path that's going to be manageable and safe. And mm. um, mm-hmm. well, I do not pour ayahuasca, so that's not a medicine that I work with. Um, I tell people that they have. It would be great if they listen to their intuitive sense about what medicine is calling them. So I do consider that um, just the way that I've. When I heard ayahuasca for several years, I was like, whatever that is, yes. Mm. Why do you not work with that? Um, I have a lot of reverence for the grandmother medicine, and I really do feel that for me to really get to know her and work in those realms, I would have to move to the jungle. And I would have to be in her territory and learn from the shamans that have been working with that medicine for generations um, it's too hot. There's too many bugs. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But uh, it's ayahuasca is a whole world in and of itself, and um, I think a lot of people that are working with that medicine that go down and do a workshop and become a quote unquote ayahuasca shaman in a couple of months are only. Um, understanding the tip of the iceberg of what that medicine is. To me, she's ancient, ancient wisdom. And, you know, it's like, it's like you're living in a castle and you only stay in the foyer the whole time. And if I was to hold space with that medicine, I would have to get to know the whole castle and it would take a while and I would have to go down to do that. So that is just my particular take on that medicine. She has helped me heal so much. And even though I've worked with her for a few years, I, you know, I still feel like I barely know her. So there is no way that I would put myself in a position to pour that medicine without having the reverence for where she comes from and going to her territory and getting to know the castle. Yeah, I I think that's so interesting. Like this is another example of sort of self-awareness and discernment and saying, look, even though this has helped me so much and this is a really powerful medicine, I love that that image that it's like a castle and you know the foyer or maybe the first room or two, but to, to really do it well, it um, would require immer- like total immersion mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. more than you're ready or willing to do right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's. I don't feel that that particular plant is my calling to work with. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that say, well, ayahuasca told me that I'm an ayahuasca shaman and I should work with her. And there's there are a lot of white people working with that medicine just months or a couple of years after they had their first experience. And, uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to judge. And there's a part of me that is like, ah. Are, are we are we helping or harming? Mm. 
And I think that's for each person to answer. You know, some people may have, maybe they were from the Andes in a past life and they have that memory in their bones and are able to really understand her deeply. And that's great. You know, I don't want to judge. And there are other people that I think ego can show up after a medicine journey where you were helped so much and you love the connection and there's all this love that is felt in the ceremony. And of course, you want to bring this to everybody and then ego kicks in and says, I, I want to bring this to everybody. And then they go become a shaman and they're getting medicine and, and serving it. And are they helping some people? Hopefully they are. Um, are they harming? Potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to come back to this question of harm in just a minute. What about the medicines that you do work with? I mean, how, I mean, do you have, again, sort of a cognitive process of thinking about how different clients might work with them in sequence or exclusively, or is it more of like an intuitive feel, or how do you Mm. decide what what path to go with people? Yeah, there are certain people that come, I kind of don't want to put it in these terms, but it feels like there are people for whom MDMA is a great first bridge it's a pretty safe medicine, it's a heart opener, and that, that just feels like a great place to start. If people, have, if people don't really have a lot of experience in other realms, if people haven't worked with psilocybin in the past, I do start with MDMA, actually. Um, and that just puts us in a great playing field of um, they, go, they go deeper, they start seeing some of their trauma, I hold space for them. I can watch how they interact with that medicine. And then depending on that, like I don't have a path, like I take everybody through and we always start with this and then go with that. And then, you know, it's, it's not like that. It is very intuitive. It comes with a lot of conversations. Some people are called right off the bat to psilocybin. Some people have been using psilocybin um, recreationally for a while, but they want to start using it therapeutically. But they already know the territory a little bit. We could start with psilocybin. I actually love the combination mm. of MDMA with psilocybin. I have seen a lot of beautiful transformation with the combination of the two. And I think, again, I, I, I see MDMA as a great bridge for a lot of people. And some people that are way more connected to nature and the roots, um, I may start with psilocybin. Mm-hmm. And some people are ready to start with Bufo, not very many. Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, Bufo, 5-methoxy, DMT. Yeah, who, how and when do you move to that? This, mm. the PhD or postdoc <laughs> of, of psychedelics. Um, yeah. Um, people have to ask for that specifically. I don't think I ever recommend and say to people, I think you're ready for Bufo. I don't. I don't do that. Again, I have a lot of reverence for that medicine. And... Uh, People have to specifically say, I've been called to work with this medicine. I've had dreams of toads or I, um, I've been hearing about it and I just get really called to it. And then we have some conversations and uh, I'd love to work with people that have done mindfulness, that have done meditation, that know how to surrender, that understand the duality and can 
can go there. Um, interestingly, Buffon in a small dose is is hard because you don't fully, fully let go of your ego, but you're on the edge. So Buffon in a higher dose can send you to the stratosphere and that can potentially be really hard to integrate. So my hope is that people that come to that medicine have, you know, are grounded on the earth and also understand that they could go to this other dimensions and then come back and potentially not understand or remember where they've been. But mm -hmm. something, something within you has shifted. What if we talk a little bit about when things can go badly, you know, whether that's with Bufo or with ayahuasca or psilocybin? Um, what does that look like? What have you seen, you know, again, what in, whether in your own work or from other or people who've talked about other experiences they've had? Is it, I'm wondering, like with Bufo, for example, is it that if someone's not quote unquote ready, it's it's more that they wouldn't be able to utilize the benefits of it and sort of they would be kind of blasted off into spiritual space but wouldn't really get much from it or do you see that it actually could cause you know psychological harm or scarring or trauma mm. similarly with a question with ayahuasca yeah well i i don't want to go down the ayahuasca route necessarily because it is not a medicine i serve i have seen some things even associates in that not a phd yeah right <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. okay. You're two-year associates in right. ayahuasca, right? We don't have to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I have seen things happen in that, in that space. Um, you know, this is a very interesting conversation because having things go quote-unquote wrong can be seen in so many different ways. Yeah. Actually, let me, let me clarify that, right? Because mm -hmm. I fully know from my own work and also from people I've worked with that extremely difficult experiences are not by right. any means bad. So what I, so I should say harming. Mm. I'm, I'm talking about, and I've had some patients that I'm quite sure have been harmed by, you know, um, whether too high a dose or bad situations with some of these medicines. So I'm really talking about that, mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. you know, not that it was painful or scary or they had to walk the coals of the sexual trauma again. No, I'm talking about right. what actually the experience with, you know, ayahuasca, psilocybin, MDMA, or, um, Bufo was actually counterproductive was harming and they left worse than they were before hmm. yeah i i have i ha, i am working actually with a couple of people who had experiences with bufo who were um who felt that they were traumatized by the experience for a couple of those people i was an assistant in the ceremony when i was training with bufo And the way that the ceremony was being done was very, very quick from person to person. And um, I think the harm was done initially with one particular person. She had no idea what she was getting into. She showed up to a ceremony because a friend invited her and told her that this was the right next thing for her to do. She didn't ask a lot of questions. She showed up and like this all these people in the ceremony were, is like, 
one person after the next after the next and there was no connection there was no intake there was no connection with the person that was serving the medicine and she did blast off I think processed a lot of trauma on the way out to the stratosphere and I held a lot of space for her even though the the person that was giving the medicine was kind of encouraging us to move to the next person and the next but I have this like intuition to just hang around this one person for a while and then we connected later and I've been coaching her since then actually for a couple of years not just on her PUFO experience but I could see how that was actually quite damaging for her to not really know what she was getting into she had no preparation whatsoever um, I have talked to someone recently called me um to do some integration work for a ceremony they did in South America. And this person had a really hard time like being on the planet afterwards. They were still very dizzy. They didn't want to close their eyes because it was just very scary. Um, interestingly, at the end of this conversation, I asked her, I don't know what question I asked her, but she said something about she had had a concussion a couple months before and she had, she thought that she had healed from that. And um, having a concussion is actually one of the contraindications to go into 5-MEO space. Um, so with this person, I said, no more medicine for a while. Even if you think you're on the medicine path, like no more ceremony, let's put our feet plant it well on the planet and actually walk barefoot on the land for a while until you fully come back. Uh, with some other people, I've had to do some soul retrieval because if you're not ready to blast off and you still have um, some trauma and, and you can't always know that this is going to happen, by the way. You know, the person can present completely ready and then have there be some sort of shattering where when you come back, you don't feel whole. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, how do you, I actually wanted to ask you about that. You know, I, I understand how integration works with MDMA or psilocybin or ayahuasca, but it's not clear to me how it works with Bufo because again, uh, I haven't experienced that medicine, but it, shattering, you use that word. And, and reading Michael Pollan's description in his book and talking to a couple of patients who've done it, it sounds so completely you know, sh shat it's shattering, but not necessarily in a, in a negative pejorative mm -hmm. way, but... That, and then you reconstitute. And I wonder, like, how do you make sense? How do you, how do you take such a otherworldly, obliterating, love-drenched unity, and you bring it back into the day-to-day -day world? I mean, what what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, because I, I don't have a specific answer. Like, it, it doesn't look in any particular way. It's different for everybody. Some people have a lot of innate wellness and are able to bring themselves back together and make sense of this world. And so you go into Bufo space, you feel potentially, and, you know, not everybody should count on this experience, but you could go to unconditional love and oneness and non-duality and then come back and try to adjust so, you know, what I tell people is one foot in front of the other, like each day will be a new day and um, understanding that there are many levels of consciousness. And when we are here in the 3D reality, we do still have to 
pay the rent and, you know, yeah. chop wood and carry water. How often have you seen or heard of people that are just wanting to kind of compulsively give back to that, that Bufo space, the 5-methoxy DMT, because it, sound, it sounds so beautiful and otherworldly and kind of like Nirvana-like. I mean, do you, do you find that some people are, are just wanting to just go back, go back, go back, and like that's what they get fixated on versus like trying to take something from that experience into their actual day-to-day life? There have been a couple of people that just want to go back and... Uh, and I have had conversations with people about addictive personality and about wanting to escape. And, you know, it, it could be very escapist, right? And um, if if people want a peak experience and just another peak experience, I tell people, go jump off a plane. Um, the medicine is not for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if you go jump off a plane, you'd probably still have to do integration. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I haven't done that. I would like to. But um, I, I think I, I, I do a lot of discouraging people to do ceremony. Um, I think we are very ceremony happy in this day and age. There are a lot of people doing a lot of ceremony. And every time, you know, somebody else comes into town, the Huni Queen or the Kuntanawa or the, you know, Curanderos or the Yajeros, you know, they're like signed up, signed up, signed up. And I tell people, have you integrated from your previous ceremony because people do get, not just with Bufo, even ayahuasca, as as difficult as the ceremony might be, there's some, there's a connection that we feel to the spirits that I think we're craving, that we want to go back and get, that we think we get in that space. And we do get in that space, but it's about coming back. And then do you come back and talk to the mountains that surround you? Mm-hmm. Do you come back and connect with the planet that way? It's not just in that room where you did ceremony. You know, it's it's about bringing it back. So in Bufo space, I do a lot of, eh, are you ready to go there? And what work have you done to integrate what you experienced before? one of our emails we were talking about this sort of post 122 decriminalization world in Colorado and you said quote i think that not including indigenous elders shamans medicine men and women and tribal chiefs to the conversation of how to properly bring these medicines back into the hands of people is a huge mistake and we'll see the impact in a few years yeah I love analogies, and I have I have an analogy. I, I don't know if it's going to work, but we'll try it. It's almost like, well, I, I should preface this by saying I just came back from Bolivia, and I spent a couple of weeks in very, very, very deep lands of ancestral wisdom with a tribe that um, are called the, the doctors, the indigenous doctors, and they have such such reverence for for the healing path and to me the indigenous people are the people that are most knowledgeable for generations about 
healing and altered states and connecting with spirits. And when I was looking at the U.S. from the vantage point of Bolivia, I was thinking, oh, my God, we're in diapers. Mm. There's so many ways in which we're just young and we think we know everything. We're like five or six-year-olds with the attitudes of like entitled 14-year-olds. And um, I don't know if this is a word, but we kind of religionize science and, you know, everything is to be scientifically proven. And when it is, then, you know, we think that that is the truth. And there's so much that doesn't fit in the perspective of science about healing and the um, altered states and the spirit realm and the indigenous people know those spaces. They're the elders that have walked those spaces and and know how to feed the spirits and know how to bring us back from certain dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, so my analogy is, you know, if, if we had a group of sixth graders get very excited about space travel and they decide that they're going to go build a rocket and uh, they think that they know everything that they need to know to build a rocket. And somebody goes, well, do you want to maybe consult with some MIT professors or aerospace engineers that have done it before? Like, no, 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 we're good. We're, we're like, we can figure it out. So, you know, the sixth graders are going to take us on space travel. That's kind of what we're doing. You know, we are taking the world of plant medicine and altered state of, states of consciousness and we're conveniently forgetting who knows about those spaces and who has been working with medicines for a very long time and the healing paths. And uh, they have their own science and they have generations of evidence that the things that they do work. They may not be in the Western scientific model, but... Um, I don't know what they're doing. Might be a good idea for us to be like, first of all, we are living on the land that we stole from you. And second of all, we've taken your medicine away from you. It is crazy to me to think that a Native American medicine person has to carry a government issued card to carry peyote, to carry their medicine in what used to be their land after we took away their land and we raped their people and we tried to take away their language and their culture and we stuck them in a piece of land that doesn't grow anything and we called it the reservation and this is your territory now because we're taking over the whole rest of it. And then by the way, you can't use your medicine and then, oh, well, we're going to be nice now and we're going to give issue you a card so that you can and you have to live within the system. That doesn't make any sense to them. And now we're legalizing the medicines without as much as looking to them and saying, so what do you think? How, do we, how should we do this in a way that makes sense? And they don't have a voice. They still don't have a voice. We've marginalized them long enough. We're still marginalizing them now. And even though they're probably 1% of the population of the state, they still should have a voice because they're actually the experts. They're like the MIT professors (laughs) of aerospace. They're the ones that know. And, um, you know, how entitled attitudes we have. Like, oh, we should 
have rights to psilocybin, right? We should have rights to these medicines and, you know, I should be able to grow them and use them in my home because, you know, I'm entitled. Well, maybe we are because nature is a part of all of us, but leaving out the people that actually walk this lands before us and know a little bit about the healing realms seems kind of crazy to me. Mm. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Mm-hmm. This has been so wonderful to sit down with you. Thanks for checking up here to see me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Beautiful work. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. The Western psychological view is the water that most of us swim in. It's so pervasive and all-encompassing that it can be hard to imagine that there are any other ways of being in and of the world. Perhaps what the ancient and indigenous traditions are most trying to tell us is that there is something much bigger than us, much grander and connecting and powerful and beautiful, and we ignore it to our own detriment and demise. (laughs) 